This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the tales of Robin Hood with a standalone episode where we discover a secret society lurking in medieval England, see Little John strut around in a habit three sizes too small, and learn that there's no problem that can't be solved by smacking someone across the head with your staff. The creature this week is why you'll want to keep your promises, because if you don't, you might have an iron-toothed rat monster chewing up your books. This is Myths and Legends, episode 198, On the Road Again. This is the podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode is kind of set outside our regular Robin Hood continuity. So, if this is your first time hearing things, just know that Robin Hood is an outlaw that lives in Sherwood Forest, in England, and that he robs from the rich and gives to the poor. He's up against the Sheriff of Nottingham, and he's in love with Marion, a woman from his past, who I currently have in the Sheriff's employ. We're going to jump in on a nice spring morning, where everything is going right, until it isn't. Methinks I would rather roam this forest in springtime than be king of all merry England, Robin boomed, laying back in the cool spring breeze. Life, life was good. His band had grown. Sir Richard, the night they had saved from destitution last episode, was funneling them weapons, and the people were flourishing. They were able to stay one step ahead of the sheriff, because Robin had found a secret way into Nottingham. So, a few nights a week, he went in to visit Marion. They were now engaged. King Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, was now gone too, off on a crusade. Incompetence now reigned with his brother, King John. Life was good. Golden Age of Robin Hood, Robin yelled. I'm calling it. Golden Age, guys. Uh, cool, cool. In other news, we're broke, little John notified his boss. Robin sat up, nonplussed. Golden age over, guys. All 45 seconds of it. But how are we broke? Robin spat. How are we not? Little John replied. We're only keeping a third of our take, and yet our numbers have swelled. Seems like every week you're getting beaten in a fight and letting the person join our troop. Robin shrugged. Well, it wasn't his fault that as the ballads became more and more widespread, they tended more towards fan service and less towards innovation and thinking up new stories. What? Little John asked. Robin shook his head. Never mind. How bad were things? They were bad, as it turned out. Little John was right. Slicing your revenue by two-thirds and tripling your workforce was a nice way to go very broke very quickly. Robin pursed his lips. All right, all right. He did have some plans in the works. They could get out of this. They always did. He snapped his fingers. He needed the disguise of a beggar and a friar. He would play the former and Little John the latter. Little John looked back. Yeah, according to wardrobe, we only have the garb of a friar. No beggar. We're so broke that we don't have a beggar costume? <sighs> All right, how much money do we actually have? Little John showed him. Robin nodded. Cool. I'll just buy some on the road. Get dressed as the friar and let's go. You, you're you gonna buy beggar's clothes. 
Little John said, as he poured himself into the friar's outfit. You know that stores don't exactly sell beggar's clothes. The only way to get beggar's clothes is off of a beggar. You don't think that's a little demeaning? Robin nodded as the pair walked on the road. Yeah, John was right. He shouldn't pay for worn, dirty clothes. He produced his quarterstaff. He'd just use this. I meant demeaning for the beggars to demand that they sell you their clothes, Robin. Robin? Little John shouted. But he and Robin had already parted ways, off on their separate missions. John was dressed as a friar, but the issue was that the only costume they had was the size of a normal person, and little John was not the size of a normal person. He tugged at the garb, more skirt than habit, and walked awkwardly toward town. He was near Tuxford when he spotted someone. Three someones. Hey, ladies, little John said, and the three women turned around. Oh, three ladies like you forced to carry baskets of eggs on your own? If I had my way, the three of you would be clothed in silk, riding horses, and eating nothing but whipped cream and strawberries. The women chuckled. Ha ha ha, all right. Yeah. Getting hit on by a friar, this was, this was fun and good. As sleazy as it started, Little John, despite his very tight habit, was actually kind of charming. And they did like how the holy man insisted on carrying the three baskets of eggs. They ended up laughing all the way to Tuxford where Little John helped them get their eggs to market. When they were done, he gestured for them to follow him off the road. They did, and he popped a cork from his staff, taking a swig from the inside and passing it to one of the young women. Is that a giant carved flask in the form of a staff? One young woman asked. Little John nodded and wiped his mouth on his robe. Oh yeah. When the four had shared a drink, Little John nodded to the women. And gave each of them an actually consensual kiss, with one of the women lamenting aloud that such a, quote, lusty man had given himself to the cloth. Little John, smirking and staggering in his too-small-by-half habit, swore to himself, rats, forgot to rob them. He shrugged. Oh, well, he took another swig from his staff, put the cork back in, and continued on. It was only a matter of time before the next mark crossed his path. And it wasn't that much time before Little John sat with two peddlers in front of an inn, resting from the heat of the day after lunch. They were all passing around his staff. The friar in disguise was singing to them, but he wasn't singing hymns. You're disgraced to your order, to the cloth itself. You know that? Little John heard from a shadow before him. He looked up and, silhouetted in the sunlight, were two friars a leaner one, and a larger one, from Fountain Abbey. You're drunk in the middle of the day and singing those, those songs? The leaner one spat. Songs and drink, Little John replied. Those were harmless, ringing hard-earned farthings out of poor, hungry peasants. Now that is a disgrace to the cloth. Little John heard a, oh, from the men behind him. And if he could see the friar's face for the shadow, he would see that they were purple with rage. Then, little John got serious. You know what? You know what? No. They were right. He had strayed from the flock. He was an apostate. Look at him. 
He should be out saving souls, not telling these guys body stories. Oh, actually, he just remembered one about the farmer's daughter. He thought it was a Viking story. Ah, look, he was doing it again. He couldn't trust himself. He, you know what? He was big enough to admit that he needed help staying on the straight and narrow. He would come with them. There wasn't any trouble he could get into in their holy company. The larger man smiled sheepishly as little John rose. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't worry about it. You, you're good. The lean man was more to the point, saying that they didn't want any of his type of company. Get thee gone. Little John was already holding on to their reins, offering to walk their horses. It was then that he noticed the man walking behind them. He pulled the horses onward. Who's this guy? This guy, one of the friars said, is going to see the prior, one of the leaders of the abbey. He's behind on his payment for his land, and the church can save him. They told little John to let go of the horses and leave. They were farther from the tavern now. Little John did let go of their horses, but only to take a few steps and stand in front of the landowner. The man, this, this worker of iniquity, better get as far away from the friars as possible. These wonderful, godly men were going to give him what? Tithe money so he could keep squandering it? Nope. Little John held up his staff. Get lost before I crack your head open with my staff slash flask. The man took off, and Little John turned back around. <laughs> You're welcome, he said to the friars. No use sending good, holy money after bad. But the two men had mounted their horses. They looked at each other, nodded, and spurred their horses on. Uh, brother, we're going to be moving quickly now, the larger friar said. Y you'll tire at this pace. You should, you should just go home. You're, you're fine. We'll see about that, Little John yelled back. And Little John didn't tire at that pace. It was a little over a mile at a gallop until one of the friars had to slow. Little John, sweating but not out of breath, jogged up alongside them. And for the next half an hour, as they passed groups of minstrels, knights, and fellow holy men, Little John proudly proclaimed that they were three friars, equal in status, just out on the road, three buds. The two actual friars, who couldn't stand to be riding with a dirty, barefoot friar, but also didn't want to be seen running away from him, again, just hung their heads. When they were finally alone on the road, the lean one turned to Little John. What will it take to get you as far away from us as possible right now. They were so sick of his vile company. He hung his head. Honestly, wow, that hurt. He didn't have any place else to go, but if they gave him enough money to stay in the inn with a little meat and cheese and bread for the night, he could leave them and pray he didn't fall back into sin. It should only be a few pennies. The lean friar shook his head. Can't do it. We don't have anything on us. The bigger one looked at his companion. Yes, I mean, no. We don't have anything. Not even a few farthings. Not even a few farthings. Little John gasped. No cash at all? The friar shook their heads. None. Friar Little John stopped. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Nothing. They pursed their lips and shook their heads. Yes, that's what nothing meant. Nothing at all. John instructed the men to get off their horses. They were praying right now to St. Dunstan for ten shillings so that they could live. John knew that their God would work miracles. The friars laughed. They weren't praying to some beggarly Saxon saint. Little John grew serious. He gripped his staff, then shook his head. No, no, no. 
they were men of the cloth. He needed to put aside those sinful urges to crack their heads open for speaking in such a way. No, he was a different man now. Looking at the staff, the friar swallowed hard. You know what? They would get down from their horses. Little John instructed them to kneel in the dirt. Good. Now let's all close our eyes and pray. It was a long prayer, and if the friars weren't so terrified, they would have fallen asleep. At the end of it, Little John said amen and opened his eyes. All right. Now, how much money did they have in their pockets? The friars put their hands in. Still empty, yeah, they should really be going. But John helped them back down to the knees by gently, but firmly, pressing on their shoulders with his quarterstaff. Let's go again. The second prayer was twice as long as the first. And this time, John was specific. Ten shillings for them. Anything else, he would know that it was for him. And when the friars opened their eyes, they saw little John standing over them. He was certain that St. Dunstan had blessed them this time. Here, he would check. He thrust his hands in their pockets and, wow, you know, brothers, he really needed to remember this. God is good. He pulled out a purse of money, 110 pounds from the lean one and 70 pounds from the other. The lean friar demanded the money back, but little John shushed him. Shh, 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 shh. They didn't have any money and they were men of God, so they wouldn't lie, right? So it's a miracle, the other friar said, hands outstretched for his money bag. It is, you're right, John said, extending the money. But, he pulled it back, I was actually the only one praying, ye of little faith, and I prayed for ten shillings each for you guys, and that any leftover would go to me. So he tossed about ten shillings apiece into the dirt and pocketed the rest. This is highway robbery, the larger friar said, finally catching on. Like, literally highway robbery. This is the will of God. Little John corrected. Unless they had lied about the money in the first place, but they would never do that. They were men of God, right? The friars were silent. Little John nodded. That's what he thought. Anyway, as promised, he would get out of their hair now that he had enough for the inn and some meat. John looked in his pack. And a fair bit more. God is good. All right, go in peace, brothers. The friars watched as Little John went back the way he came, whistling with all their cash jingling at his side. And that night, the farmer that had been in the friar's toe found a whole sack of money on his doorstep, enough to pay off his debt completely so he wouldn't lose his house to the church. We'll see what Robin's up to, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. Meanwhile, Robin was enjoying some pocket pie. You see, in his hunt for beggar's clothes, he was on the right path. He had found a man who was ostensibly a beggar. Robin had stopped by the man, sitting in the shade just off the road and asked the beggar the first of two questions, where he, Robin, could get something to eat. A seemingly cruel question to ask a beggar, but the man simply shrugged with a smile. He didn't trouble himself with such concerns. He said he carried a feast with him, because places like the inn just down the road tried to beat him if he stopped by. Anyway, he said it was about lunchtime. He emptied his pockets, 
pigeon pie wrapped in a cabot leaf to hold the gravy. Some head cheese, which I hadn't come in contact with said food, but it's something of room temperature meat jelly made from the flesh of a head of a calf or pig. Fun. The beggar had some white bread, four oat cakes, a knuckle of ham, and four eggs that oh, somehow found their way from the farm down the road and into his pocket. Robin told the beggar to stop. Oh, the man was making his stomach quake with all those mouth-watering descriptions of such well-preserved meats, gravies, and head cheese from his warm pocket. Robin said that if the man permitted him, he would go to the inn that the beggar was permabanned from, buy them a massive skin of ale, and return. Then could they share the meal the beggar had collected? The beggar agreed, and Robin made for the inn. He returned to the smell of eggs cooking in butter, over some coals. Robin passed the ale to the beggar, and the man passed the lukewarm pigeon pie to the outlaw, and together they dined. At the end of the meal, the beggar asked Robin what the other thing was, the other question he wanted to ask. Robin pursed his lips. Uh, it was stupid. Never mind. The beggar, taking another long swig of ale, gestured for Robin to continue. Come on. What was it? Robin said that he, he wanted to be a beggar, he loved the idea of the traveling, not being tied down, to be able to run free on the open road and drink beer in the middle of the day with strangers. The beggar said, well, the thing is, it's both very easy and extremely difficult to be a beggar. It's like starting a podcast. Anyone can technically do it, but there's really more to it than that. Case in point, Robin could go begging right now, but the way he was dressed, he looked like a human. Not as well off as one of the gentry, but certainly not a laborer certainly not someone who needed the money. Robin said he figured. Truth was, he had come into the woods to procure the clothes of a beggar. The beggar stopped squirting ale in his mouth. Is that so? Robin nodded. Yeah, he had come with a staff to just crack someone over the head for their clothes. But they just had such a lovely meal. He would even go so far as to pay a beggar for his clothes. So, how about it? Would two gold coins do? The beggar stood. I'll tell you what you'll do. Leave. You don't think I know what's going on? I've split the head of better men than you. Robin told the beggar to chill out. He said he wouldn't attack the man. But the beggar had given Robin the warning. He rose, saying that when he was finished beating the stranger, he would take that gold as payment for the lunch. The beggar rushed Robin, fists out, and Robin cracked him once on the head. He dropped like a sack of potatoes. Robin checked the unconscious body. He wasn't bleeding, he just had a concussion, though that's still really bad for you. Robin grabbed the skin of ale and sat the beggar up, squirting some in his face and into his mouth. With a cough, the man awoke. Why am I laying on my back? The man asked. And then he looked into Robin's face. Oh. Then, he smiled. Wow, this ale was stronger than he thought. Here he was sleeping in the middle of the day with a splitting headache. Robin nodded. Yeah, the beggar didn't want another drink, did he? The beggar's eyes widened. Oh, no, 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 he was good. Before he took a short nap, he remembered the stranger asking for his clothes. He was more than happy to oblige, but the stranger just wanted his clothes, right? On his honor as a yeoman? Robin nodded. He wasn't interested in the few pennies that a beggar would have. The man nodded. Very good. He took his penknife and ran it down the seam of his coat. The gold coins came spilling out. 
Robin chuckled as he undressed. And before long, the beggar was filling Robin's purse with gold. Saying that not even his own wife would recognize him now, he was going into the city to live it up, while the gold lasted. Robin, who had just finished putting on the beggar's cap, nodded. Nice. Oh, uh, no reason, but maybe don't go into nodding him wearing those clothes. The beggar tipped his cap and went on his way. Robin, too, continued down the road. Now that he had the right costume, it was time to make the real money. Robin parted the branches of the grove where he knew they would be. In the grove, three men sat around a second makeshift feast. Each man, in tatters, wore a board on string around their necks. The man who wore the one that said, I am deaf, looked at Robin. The blind one groped at the air. Did, did everyone hear something? Was there someone else in the clearing? The deaf man replied that it was another like them. All good guys. The man with the sign that said he was blind looked directly at Robin. Nice to meet you, brother. The man who wore the sign that said, Pity the lame man, stood and shook Robin's hand. The one wearing the sign that indicated that he couldn't speak told him to sit. Have something to eat with them. Robin grinned. Well, look at him, bringing sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and a, quote, lusty leg to the lame, and so on. They passed him an ale, and he raised it. Not to their health, because they were in perfect health, but to their happiness. The man who couldn't speak asked him where he had come from. Robin pointed over his shoulder. He spent the night in Sherwood Forest. The deaf man's ears pricked up. Sherwood Forest? He was a brave one, wasn't he? The beggar said that he wouldn't trade all the money they were carrying to stay one night in Sherwood. <laughs> if Robin Hood had found one of their trade in his woodlands, he would probably make their signs true. Robin chuckled as he sipped his ale. Yeah, yeah, he probably would. What money were they talking about? The lame man spoke up. Oh, you know, their king, Peter of York. He sent them to Lincoln with money that... Stay your tongue, Brother Hodge. The blind man interrupted. He said he didn't doubt their brother here, but keep in mind, they didn't know him. The blind man looked into Robin's eyes. Tell me, stranger, he asked. What are you? An upright man, a jerkman, clapper dudgeon, dummerer, or Abraham man? Robin, eyes wide and mouth agape, recovered. Truly, he said, trying to surreptitiously read each of their faces. I'm an upright man, or at least I try to be. Robin relaxed when he saw his hosts breathe a bit. Well, that was lucky. Tell me, brother, the blind man said, leaning forward. Has thou ever fibbed to chouse Gorons in the Rome pad for the lure of his bung? Robin swallowed. Well, you see... He kicked off and rolled back to a nearby bush, where he had stashed his quarterstaff. When he stood, he found himself looking at the four beggars, who had risen to their feet just as quickly as he had. They were ready, with their staffs, cudgels, and clubs. If they didn't mind, Robin said he would be leaving. The circle moved around Robin, surrounding him. The blind man replied that he already knew too much. He wouldn't be leaving this clearing. <laughs> I knew the guild was real, Robin said with a smile. He peeked over his shoulder. Did that do it? 
the growl and swing behind him showed him that his little provocation worked. The blind man was attacking without coordinating with the others. Robin ducked and cracked him on the forehead. He went down, rolling and writhing in pain as the blood started pouring down his forehead and into his eyes. The deaf man made the next move. Robin cracked him on the ear and he fell to the dirt unconscious. The other two held off. Just two to one now, Robin said, flexing his basic math skills. The man who couldn't speak and the lame man gritted their teeth, gripped their staffs, and then took off. For the rest of his life, Robin would never see someone run as fast as the lame man had that day. The deaf man was still out cold, so Robin crouched over the blind man, still writhing on the ground. You were clearly the smartest and the leader up until the end there, Robin said, fishing around inside the man's cloak. So it stands to reason... Ah, here it is. He yanked the bag free and untied it. Huh. Full of copper pence. He expected gold. Hmm. His eyes scanned the campsite, and then he looked back to the blind man, remembering the beggar he had met earlier that day. When the blind man saw Robin looking at his cloak, he panicked and tried to rise, but Robin pinned him to the ground. The outlaw had his dagger out and warned the man that if he tried to move, Robin might miss. Robin cut the cloak down the seam on the side and smiled. Four wool rolls. Fifty golden pounds. Fifty pounds, Robin exclaimed. He had heard of the Beggar's Guild, but he didn't know that they not only existed, but they were moving around sums like this. Anyway, they could probably stand to donate this to his cause and his merry men. Robin rolled over the blind man and put his cloak on and said if the Beggar's Guild wanted to make another donation, they should stop by Sherwood Forest. Oh, and don't get up, Robin said, shoving the man back down to the ground with the butt of his staff. I'll see myself out. As soon as Robin casually sauntered from the clearing, he took off in a dead sprint for at least a few minutes down the road. No reason to tempt fate, or think that the Beggar's Guild, who managed to be so secretive that people didn't even realize they existed, might not have people protecting their money handlers. When he was convinced he wasn't followed, and he was safely back on the edge of Sherwood Forest, Robin slowed on the road. Fifty gold pounds was more than he thought they would have. How powerful was this guild? When he caught his breath, he found himself walking alongside a man on the road. Robin studied him. The man was dressed simply, but almost too simply. It was too perfect. Hmm. Robin cleared his throat. <clears throat> the man jumped a bit, and then turned, relaxing. Oh, a beggar. Pity a poor beggar. Give me but a farthing to buy a piece of bread. The secret rich man snarled at the beggar. How dare you, how dare you stop me on the king's highway. People like you are better off in prisons, or dancing upon nothing with a rope collar than strolling on the highways. Robin shook his head. Wow, but... How do you really feel? The man growled again and said that if he ever caught the beggar in the city, he would be sure to have the man whipped. Robin winked, though. If the man could recognize him in the city, Robin said he looked pretty different. The man shook his head. What did the beggar mean by that? Robin gestured to the forest. Look around them. Look where they were. Sherwood Forest. This was where he lived. Robin watched the man tremble under the thinnest veneer of bravado, 
Didn't matter. If Robin Hood existed, and that was a pretty big if, he wouldn't find a farthing on the man. Robin nodded. Nice. He had his own form of protection. The beggar outfit? He had one at each of his houses in Lincolnshire, and another in Nottingham. Whenever he had to come through this area, he put it on. Never had a problem. The man rolled his eyes, starting to say that you shouldn't really rely on security through obscurity, but then he saw what Robin had inside his cloak. All that gold. The man's jaw dropped. Wow. So this stranger, he wasn't a beggar. And you aren't a human, Robin smiled. He didn't remember the man's name, but he was that famous corn magnate, right? That was all the more impressive because this was the 12th century and corn wouldn't come to England for the next 300 years. The man nodded very good. So they did run in the same circles. He apologized to Robin. He only physically threatened his life because he thought he was poor. Robin threw up his hands. No need to apologize. They were rich guys. It's what they did. He had to ask, though. The human costume was nice and all, but where did he keep his cash if not on his person so he could keep it safe from Robin Hood? The man looked from side to side. Not here. Let's keep going. As they walked, they talked about how great it was to be rich in the Middle Ages. The corn magnate bragged about the time he saw a giraffe, tried black pepper on his food, ate an orange? Hmm? Obviously, he was a big deal. Wow. What a time to be alive, Robin said, marveling. Eventually, they passed beyond the border of Sherwood Forest, and about a quarter mile later, the corn magnate sat down on the side of the road and pointed to his shoes. Did Robin see the clogs? Robin looked down to the wooden shoes that had five-inch-tall wooden soles. Oh, the rich man said that the third nail down from the toes, if you twist that, the bottom drops out. Each sole could carry 100 golden pounds, buffered by hair, so they didn't sing too much while he walked. Robin guffawed. Look at this old fox, 100 pounds per foot? That's what he had in his shoes? The corn magnate forced a smile. Cool, yep, that was a secret, and he wanted it to stay a secret, so... Robin nodded. Yeah, yeah, of course. Wouldn't want Robin Hood to know. That guy, ugh. He might put his quarterstaff in your face and demand that you just take off those shoes right now, Robin said, as he did exactly those two things. The man chuckled. But notice that Robin's quarterstaff wasn't moving. Robin continued laughing, being like, You're going to have to walk barefoot. If I ever catch you in my forest again, I'll have you beaten. And what was it? Dance upon nothing with a rope collar. Robin laughed. Good times, good times. Uh, he held the position, though, and then said out loud, How would Robin know that you like to threaten random beggars with illegal beatings? Unless... Then he waited. He liked to watch them put it together sometimes. The corn magnate's smile broke, and perspiration started beating on his forehead. Robin nodded. There it is. That's the reaction he was looking for. Robin looked up and down the road. All right, off with the shoes. Third nail, right? Ah, it didn't matter. He just smashed them open when he got back to camp. They looked ridiculous. They were super obvious anyway. The man, trembling, kicked off his clogs, and backing away from the staff, took off in a run, barefoot, down the road.
guess who's back? The outlaws heard from the woods. It was twilight when Robin finally approached the hideout, wearing the cloak and the clogs. He had stopped to loosen both. The men were sitting around the fire when he burst through. Who wants some gold? He yelled, and with kick after kick, flick after flick with his cloak, sent gold pounds flying around camp. Out of gold and out of breath, Robin approached the fire and his thoroughly unimpressed compatriots. Now we need to dig through all those bushes for gold, little John said, still in the guise of the barefoot fire. Yeah, why would you do that? Will Scarlet asked. Robin shrugged. He just wanted to make an entrance. But now the gold's all over the forest, Friar Tuck noted. And my food has what? What is this? Hair? Will said, holding up a hairy potato. Robin shook his feet. Yeah, the hair was in the clogs. It came from a sadistic millionaire, too, so it might be human hair, if that's better? It wasn't. The men brushed the hair off their food and resumed dinner, while Robin sighed and started collecting 250 gold pounds from the grass and forest. In the dark, Robin had just finished picking up the gold when he heard something. Then, the rest of his camp heard it too. It was a horse and a rider. They had a visitor. Sir Richard emerged from the forest. His horse worked to a lather. The dozen bows trained on the spot lowered as they recognized a friend. Richard leapt from his horse and found Robin. He had news. The sheriff. The sheriff of Nottingham had finally made his move. And it was bad. So, we're in the endgame now. I see Robin Hood is divided up into three distinct periods. The first, where he's an unrepentant, murderous cutthroat. The second is our current one, where he robs from the rich and actually gives to the poor. And the third, dealing with some of the later literary traditions. We're fast approaching the end of his career in the second phase, with the stories we haven't gone over just kind of being rehashes of the stories we have told. I think we'll be able to finish this before the year is out but it will be a wild ride. Next week, we're in Japanese folklore with the very famous story of the Moonlight Princess that was adapted into a movie by Studio Ghibli. The creature this week is Tesso from Japanese folklore. In the 13th century, the emperor of Japan wanted a son. What emperor doesn't? So he asked a monk to pray for the birth of an heir. The monk, Raigo, Follow the Joker's exhortation that if you're good at something, never do it for free. And he bargained that if the emperor had a son, he would get a new ordination platform for his temple. The emperor agreed, and so the monk threw himself into prayers and meditation, and eventually, Emperor Shirogawa had a son. The monk went to the emperor, asking when the construction could begin, but the emperor only grimaced about that. You see, a rival monk faction in that sect of Buddhism didn't want the peaceful monks getting a new platform. And they could get their way because they were warrior monks who absolutely terrified the emperor. One source I found said that the emperor of Japan could not influence three things. The rolling of the dice in a cup, the wind, and these particular warrior monks. He could use the warrior monks 
and couldn't risk angering them because with them on his side, he could exert great physical and political power. He apologized to Raigo, offering him anything else he wanted, but the man took a seat. He wanted what was promised to him. He wanted that ceremonial platform and he wasn't going to eat until he got it. So 100 days later, he died, cursing the emperor. Now, you have to understand, in Japanese folklore and mythology, it's really bad to have someone die cursing your name. Like Rago, who became Tesso, the iron-toothed rat. After the monk died, his body just disappeared. But then, not long after, screams were heard from the shrines and temples in the city. Rats. Rats everywhere. They were hordes, targeting and devouring the Buddhist scriptures, sacred books, and even the statues of the Buddha himself, they were being led by a rat the size of an old monk, a monster with a body like stone and teeth like iron. They attacked everywhere. But the focal point of Tesso, the iron rat's rage, was the temple of the rival monks. People all over the city united against this new menace, and soon after, the warrior monks allowed it. The construction began on the platform. That day, the rat attack stopped and the emperor went one step farther, building a shrine to Tesso himself. Raigo's shrine apparently still stands to this day, and while Buddhist temples are generally built facing east, this one was built facing north, so Tesso, the iron rat, could always be looking at the other temple, the one of the warrior monks, the objects of his rage. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? You should really check out BetterHelp. They assess your needs to match you with your own professional, licensed therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Visit betterhelp.com myths. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Myths and Legends listeners get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com myths. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>